I'm Kara Miller. This week on Innovation Hub, humans, to put it simply, are a weird species. We simultaneously have absolutely unprecedented capacities for being miserably violent to each other and unprecedented capacities for being compassionate and altruistic. Then the story of a man who measured the air and changed the way we understand our planet. It really defined a whole broad agenda for the community to start dealing with climate change, realizing that it was an incontrovertible fact that CO2 was building up and would, would, would be affecting climate at some point. Plus, how did corporations in America get the same basic rights as people? Well, it turns out that like women and minorities who were left out of the original promise of we the people, corporations too have been fighting for equal rights for over 200 years. That's all coming up next on Innovation Hub. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. For some people, there is no single defining moment in their lives. For Hugh Thompson, a funeral director from Stone Mountain, Georgia, there was. Thompson was only in his mid-20s when the moment came, and it was a moment that would define him for good and bad for the rest of his life. It was 1968. Thompson was in the U.S. Army, and not surprisingly, he was stationed in Vietnam. And on March 16, 1968, he was looking for the enemy from a helicopter. What he found was Americans killing non-combatants in an area where poor peasants mostly farmed rice. Thompson had stumbled onto what would become known as the My Lai Massacre. He talked about it with the BBC in 1989. I remember the thought going through my mind, how, how did these people get in a ditch? And I finally thought about the uh, uh, Nazis, I guess, and marching everybody down into the ditch and blowing them away. Here we are supposed to be the good guys in the white hats. Upset me. Hugh Thompson had several choices in that moment. He could say nothing to his fellow Americans, he could join in with the soldiers on the ground, or he could try to stop them. But given our biology and the culture that has been built on top of it, trying to stop fellow Americans, that was going to be pretty tough. We are primates, we are mammals, and like a whole lot of them, we are very, very hardwired to divide the world into us's and them's. Robert Sapolsky is a professor of biology and neurology at Stanford University. We process us, them, in group, out group uh, categorizations in under 100 milliseconds in our brains, neuroimaging studies. There are hormones that exacerbate the contrast between us being nice to us's and being <laughs> very antisocial to them. It's incredibly hardwired. And I would venture to say, unless you're the, the Dalai Lama and his friends, basically all of us carry in us a capacity to make rapid us-them distinctions and to not be all that nice to them. So in this moment when Thompson faced a choice, the question was who, in his mind, was an us and who was a them? Hugh Thompson, a lifetime of, you know, American nationalist sort of inculcation as to who is an us. As long as others will challenge America's security and test the dearness of our beliefs with fire and steel, 
then we must stand or see the promise of two centuries tremble. And at a critical moment, he shifted who was an us. And us were the surviving civilians in Milai, who he protected um, at great personal risk. And them were his fellow American soldiers who were being savage. When I did instruct my crew, my crew chief and gunner, you know, to open up on them if they open up on any more civilians. I don't know, I don't know how it felt if they would have opened up on them. But that particular day, I wouldn't have given it a second thought. It's, they were the enemy at that time, I guess. They were damn sure the enemy to the people on the ground. Thompson confronted Lieutenant William Calley, who was in command, about what he and his men were doing. Calley would later be court-martialed and convicted of murder. For the rest of his life, Thompson was rewarded and derided for what he did in March of 1968. And he was plagued until he died by what he had seen. In some ways, he is like a great logical example of how we humans work. In some ways, he's just mind-bogglingly unique. Robert Sapolsky has spent decades trying to figure out why we act the way we do and where the sorts of profound decisions that Thompson made come from. Sapolsky is the author of Behave, the biology of humans at our best and worst. And as part of his odyssey towards understanding us at our best and our worst, he has spent more than 30 years studying our relatives, baboons and chimps, in Africa. You know, you study those sorts of folks for a while, and to state something idiotically obvious, uh, humans are kind of interesting and complicated and counterintuitive and contradictory in ways that leave other animals out there open-mouthed at the, the bizarreties of it. We do things no other animal would do. We, we choose not to pass on copies of our genes and join some celibate sect of some sort. We, we adopt somebody from the other side of the planet. We hold the door open for strangers in a foreign place where we're never going to interact with them. Again, so there's no chance that they're going to be able to reciprocate. Mm-hmm. We, we're just a weird right. species in that regard. Right. And in lots of ways, what's weirdest about it is we simultaneously have absolutely unprecedented capacities for being miserably violent to each other and unprecedented capacities for being compassionate and altruistic and cooperative. And it's just so damn interesting trying to make sense of how we can incorporate these extremes and how we could manage all those ambiguous behaviors somewhere in between Hmm. and how much all of it is Mm context-dependent. One person's freedom fighter is another's terrorist. Hmm. So uh, speaking of context, you write in your book about the many layers that are involved when you make any decision, right? There's the moment right before you make it, right before, let's say, you pull a trigger or you punch somebody or whatever it is. Um, There's the life that you had growing up. And then there's even further back, like the lives of your ancestors, the things that shaped your genes. How do you think we might think maybe incorrectly about an action, like like a pulling of the trigger or punching a person, and how that action actually comes about? When you look at the fact that, you know, 
our behavior is the product of our brains. We are nothing more or less than that collection of brain cells up there and their interactions. And the fact that how you behave will be influenced by subliminal sensory cues that you were exposed to a minute ago. Mm -hmm. For example, put somebody in a room with smelly garbage and they become more socially conservative on questionnaires. You're influenced by the hormone levels that were in your bloodstream over the previous two days, raise somebody's testosterone levels, and they're more likely to interpret a face with a neutral expression on it as having a threatening one. Hmm. We're being influenced by adolescence when we wired up our frontal cortex finally, by our childhood, by our fetal life, our fetal environment, get exposed to a lot of stress hormones as a fetus, thanks to mom having been stressed during pregnancy. And on the average, you're going to have a larger version of a part of the brain called the amygdala that's got to do with aggression and perceiving things as threatening or not. And then you're often running with genes, and then it turns out the cultures your ancestors invented centuries ago, are you collectivist? Are you individualist? Are you a hunter-gatherer? Are you a pastoralist? Those things play out as to how you're being raised within minutes of birth. And then, you know, just to finish the picture, we've got to put in uh, consideration of the sort of species we've evolved to be. In other words, you are up the creek if you think you can explain our best, worst in-between behaviors with here's the part of the brain that explains everything, here's the gene, the hormone, the childhood experience, the evolutionary mechanism, you got to put them all together. And what comes out the other end is a picture of us being profoundly biologically determined organisms. Um, one of the things that really fascinates me and that you write about to some degree, is uh, twin studies. And they have been this very powerful way of understanding the impact of genetics and try, trying as much as we can, you know, to isolate these issues of genetics and culture. Um, and you write that twin studies have shown that genetics play a major role in everything from IQ to schizophrenia, depression, autism, alcoholism, extroversion, agreeableness, and, like, the list goes on. Um that seems to me to speak a lot to the power of whatever's in your body when you're born. And even though we pay so much attention and spend so much money and put so much thought into what happens after you're born, if twins who are separated at birth can have all those things, you know, extroversion and autism, they can have all those things in common. I, I don't know. It seems like a lot's hardwired. How does it seem to you? Okay, I'm actually... A, a very cranky skeptic of an awful lot of what has come out of this field term behavior genetics, both from twin studies or adoption studies or, as you said, like the the Super Bowl in the whole field, identical twins adopted right. early in life it, and then right. reunited. So there's lots of issues that come up here. Okay, so first off, some of these links to genetics to heritability um, are in fact quite strong. Probably introversion, extroversion is the biggest one out there. Mm. So are we genetically determined to be introverted or extroverted? What you see in some cases is what would be an indirect effect. A large percentage of the introversion, extroversion is in fact carried genetically by height. Tall people are treated better. Tall people are considered more attractive, tall people become more confident and extroverted. Hmm. 
Mm. It turns out a huge percentage of that introversion-extroversion linkage to genes, in fact, is mediated by a much more mundane thing. Oh, genes have something to do with like how long your leg bones are going to grow. Um, So that is the first confound. Next one is that there's very little out there when it comes to behavior that remotely can qualify as genetic determinism. Genes are not about inevitability. They're about vulnerabilities. They're about potentials. For example, one gene related to a really like critical neurotransmitter system in the brain comes in two different flavors and a ton of lab work had suggested if you had one of the two variants, you were going to be more prone towards antisocial violent behavior. Hmm. Whoa. Lots of lab studies, rats, monkeys suggesting that mechanisms worked out. Totally beautiful science. So classic study followed thousands of subjects from birth up to age 25 or so in their genetics, all of that. And the question becomes at age 25, if you had that genetic variant, were you more likely to have a history of violent antisocial behavior? And the answer was yes, yes, absolutely, if and only if you were abused as a child. In other words, in the absence of that environmental sort of interactive effect, having that gene had no impact whatsoever. It's not the gene, it's the gene in a particular environment. Um, Probably the biggest problem that plagues both twin studies, but especially adoption studies, is adoption studies in particular is predicated on the notion that, okay, you get a kid and you adopt them away two seconds after they're born. Mm -hmm. And instead of growing up in the middle of the Amazon, they grow up in the Gobi Desert and their adoptive parents, all they get from them is environment. Mm -hmm. And their biological parents, all they got from them was genes Mm -hmm. because after all, they were adopted away within seconds of birth and thus if you see more similarities to the biological parents, you could then attribute it to genes case closed. Right. And what has completely done in that whole assumption is the fact that environment doesn't begin at birth. Mm. You've just spent nine very mm-hmm. intimate months sharing right. your mother's circulation, your mother's sensory experiences in lots of cases. And it turns out that matters enormously. Adult risk of metabolic syndrome, obesity, hypertension, clinical depression, schizophrenia, all of those are significantly modulated Mm -hmm. by prenatal environment. In other words, like all sorts of things that have been attributed to genes instead, you know, could be prenatal environment. And some of those effects have now been shown to in fact have been spuriously attributed to genes. So at Mm. the end of the day, I'm, I'm, less impressed with genes than many people are because they don't make any sense and they're not meaningful outside the context of the environment in which they occur. Right. And this notion that there's a bucket, this sort of genetic bucket and the cultural bucket, it sounds like not at all. They're just, there's so much porousness between those buckets that you can't, exactly. you, you can't separate one from the other. Exactly. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Robert Sapolsky, a professor of biology and neurology at Stanford. He's the author of Behave, the Biology of Humans at Our Best and Worst. So we've talked about culture. We've talked about genetics. If both of those have tremendous power, very often beyond your control, you you don't uh, change the culture you're 
you grow up in, usually you obviously cannot control your genetics. What does that say to you about free will and our ability (laughs) to shape our own lives? Well, if you spend enough time looking at how we are shaped by everything from a subliminal sensory stimulus 10 seconds ago to why humans evolved the way they are rather than being chimps or bonobos and everything in between. You spend enough time with that. And, you know, that concept of free will starts seeming mighty suspect. Hmm. One can argue till the cows come home with certain branches of philosophers. But in terms of that, I come out as what's termed a hard determinist. I don't think there's a shred of free will out there. Um, I think free will is what we call the biology that hasn't been uncovered yet. And when you look at the history of our knowledge about what biology has to do with behavior, we've spent the last, I don't know, couple of centuries or so over and over repeating the same phrase, which is, whoa, I had no idea that sort of biology had anything to do with it. Hmm. Whoa, I had no idea that an epileptic seizure is a disease rather than someone who's been consorting with Satan. Mm -hmm. Oh, I had no idea circa 1950s that a child have a lot of trouble learning to read rather than being lazy and unmotivated has the cortical malformations that we now call a learning disability. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the sheer percentage of what we know about the biological shaping of our behavior... Oh, 95% of it was discovered in the last half century, 90% of it in the last 25 years, 85% since you woke up this morning kind of thing. (laughs) All that has been happening is this endless march of, oh, I had no idea biology had to do with that. Hmm. And it has already convinced us of that in some of our most fundamental areas. And at the end of the day, either you could conclude there's no free will whatsoever, and that's my stance, or at least you're going to have to admit there's a lot less free will than there used to be in sort of Western thinking and Western values and judgments. And it's getting squeezed into all sorts of really uninteresting places. And that's just going to keep happening. And maybe down the line, if you want to insist it was free will while you flossed your upper teeth this morning instead of your lower ones, go for it, be happy. But I think by all logic, again, this notion, free will is just the biology we haven't discovered yet. Does that mean you must think then all the time in your own life, you know, am I really choosing to be interested in primates or is this the, is this <laughs> something, right, that's baked into the cake? Am I really choosing not to eat that cookie or was that already kind of baked into like who I, I mean, do you think that all the time in your own life? Well, that's the problem. Um, you know, amid, again, I'm totally intellectually comfortable with the notion that there's no free will whatsoever. It's a myth. We are nothing more or less than our biology. At the same time, I haven't the remotest idea how you're supposed to live if you actually started believing that. Right. There's obvious things to do, which is completely revamp how we do criminal justice and education and all sorts of other things like that. But at the end of the day, like, you know, without question, I show that I'm a total hypocrite and have not really incorporated this thinking (laughs) because, like, if I give a lecture and somebody comes up afterward and says, oh, good lecture, I'll say thanks. 
I'll say thanks when I'm supposed to say, no, actually, it's this amount due to my having adequate protein levels when I was a fetus and this and this and this and this. My culture, and, right? Yeah. Yeah. And like, how do you function that way? And right. on a certain level, if it's going to be hard for us to accept that there's no free will when it comes to judging them and their awful behaviors... Um, it's going to be that much harder to accept that it's absolutely just as applicable when it comes to us and our laudable ones. Um, I want to go back to something that you just mentioned, the criminal justice system. So believing what you do, how do you think about this system that's all about choices people make and then how other people obviously choose to punish them or not punish them uh, for, for what they did? Well, not not to sound like too much of a hothead here, as if I haven't already, but let's see, just to sort of state it subtly, the criminal justice system makes no sense whatsoever. There's there's no souls, there's no evil, there's no there's no punishment that in and of itself I mean, none of this stuff makes sense. The the criminal justice system runs on neurobiology that's close to two hundred years old literally in what's called the McNaughton ruling, the difference of knowing between right and wrong. And other than that, for the most part, it's ignored the last 200 years of behavioral science. 25% of the men on death row in this country have a history of concussive head trauma to their frontal cortex. And when you damage the frontal cortex, you have somebody who can know the difference between right and wrong and they still can't regulate their behavior. Mm. And when they do something appalling at that point, Invoking evil it makes as much sense as invoking the notion of evil when a car whose brakes have failed hits somebody. Hmm. And in both cases, you don't leave them out on the street being dangerous. But when you put a car in a garage because you can't fix the brakes and it's dangerous, you don't sit there and say justice has been served and this car is not going to get to drive around in the countryside anymore on a sunny day. It's just a mechanical problem. And in a horribly simplified way, we're biological machines. And if it's dehumanizing to turn us into machines in that way, it's a hell of a lot better than demonizing us into having rotten souls when we may just have something screwy with one neurotransmitter system. In some ways, uh, the argument that you make really affects huge swaths of our culture, it seems to me. Like, I think about the entire section of a bookstore, right, that's designed to help you succeed more in life. So that, you know, books to help you find love, books to help you succeed at work, books to help you do well in school, uh, to make friends better. Um, but in some ways, there is no need for that section if it's predetermined whether you're going to succeed at work or you're going to make friends or you're not. Well, but nonetheless, you've got to incorporate the fact in there that behavior changes. Yeah. And it's not deterministic in the sense that like a Puritan neurobiologist would have right. said at Plymouth Rock or something. <laughs> right, right. But it's instead in a much more interesting, hopeful way. For example... Um, conventional language that we would use, you sit there and you hear about the story of Hugh Thompson and you come out of there inspired. Right. Inspired, he did something amazing. Right. Inspired, there was nothing extraordinary about his upbringing. Inspired, five minutes before that, he was no more amazing than you or me. He put his pants on one leg at a time, etc. Wow, maybe I could be more like Hugh Thompson. 
So we've just given sort of an English description of what it is to be inspired by somebody. What is that neurobiologically, the fact that a human can do what he did and the fact that you just heard about it might very well change something in your frontal cortex. Mm. And two and a half more neurons than we're working this way this morning are now involved in a sense of efficacy Mm -hmm. and doing the right thing when it's the terrifying thing to do. When you're inspired, when you're demoralized, when you're deflated, when you're buoyed by something, those are as biological a phenomena as anything else, and they leave their traces. So the fact that we can learn about the nature of the world and in the process, by definition, that changes the nature of our brain and our subsequent behaviors um, is totally compatible with us as deterministic biological organisms. It just tells you, go and study what the most efficacious ways are to like, bring about good changes in those brains of ours. Robert Sapolsky is a professor of biology and neurology at Stanford. He's the author of Behave, the Biology of Humans at Our Best and Worst. Robert, thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. We've got more on our website about the story of Hugh Thompson, what he did when he found himself at the My Lai Massacre in Vietnam, and how he came to terms later with what had happened. That's all at innovationhub.org. There are lots of graphs that'll show you how politics has changed. Graphs, for example, that track views on gay marriage, graphs that show how the South slowly shifted over the past century from Democratic-leaning to Republican-leaning. But those graphs reflect how politics has changed. They don't change politics. Sixty years ago, though, a graph began to do just that. It was created by Charles Keeling, a young man originally from Scranton, Pennsylvania, who happened to have a Ph.D. in chemistry. Keeling figured out a reliable way of measuring something that hadn't been systematically measured before, carbon dioxide. And 60 years ago, he began a graph that quite literally changed how we think about our world. Because in the 1950s, scientists wanted to know, was the level of carbon dioxide in the air on the rise? There was reason to think that it should be, but it hadn't been demonstrated. That's Charles Keeling's son, Ralph. And he says... 200 years of factories belching smoke into the air had, of course, not escaped the notice of scientists. But they didn't really know how it was changing the planet. So in 1958, Charles Keeling's carbon dioxide measuring contraption was installed on the Mauna Loa volcano on the big island of Hawaii. Mauna Loa is truly otherworldly. It's uh, a lava scape that goes on for miles and miles It's a very strange place. It's a very remote place. Ralph Keeling says his dad needed a place like that, that was away from the influence of trees and of pollution, and a volcano in the middle of the Pacific turned out to be just right. What those measurements on Mauna Loa revealed was that carbon dioxide was building up in the air, though at the time, hardly anybody cared. Still, if Keeling wanted to draw serious conclusions from what was happening, he knew he would have to keep tracking the gas to see if there was a real pattern. 
Ralph Keeling, Charles's son, who went on to earn a Ph.D. himself, has now taken over much of his late father's work at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography in San Diego. And he says, It soon became evident that something dramatic was happening in the atmosphere. Past levels of carbon dioxide could be measured by looking at Antarctic ice, which has trapped air bubbles in it from long ago. So scientists had some idea of where we'd been. So for about the last million years, carbon dioxide levels have uh, swung between a low of around 200 and a high of around 280. And by the time Charles Keeling started measuring in the 1950s, the Industrial Revolution had been going full tilt in much of the Western world for more than a century. Well, when he started uh, the measurements, the levels in the atmosphere were around 315 parts per million. A part per million means that one molecule out of a million molecules. So 315 means that out of a million molecules in air, 315 are carbon dioxide. So and since then, it's gone from 315 to nearly 410 parts per million. It's increasing now at about two and a half parts per million per year. Uh, some years a little more, some years a little less, but uh, it's been pretty relentless when you look at over the long haul. So all of a sudden, a world that had had a million years of CO2 levels hovering between 200 and 280 parts per million was by the 1950s already over 300. And Charles Killing watched that number march upwards every year. The graph that he created to track CO2, it became famous. It was called the Keeling Curve. And as the curve became more well-known, a few people outside the world of science started taking note of his work. Senator Burdick, I appreciate your courtesy in allowing me to appear here as a, a witness. In the 1970s, a representative from Tennessee named Al Gore held hearings on climate change. By the mid-80s, Gore himself, as you heard, was called before a Senate subcommittee to testify as an expert witness. Uh, modern man has acquired the ability through technology to catastrophically modify the fragile atmosphere of our planet. Sitting near Gore at that hearing was probably the most famous scientist in the country. Next witness is Dr. Carl Sagan of Cornell University, a man who needs no introduction. He comes to us today from the Center for Radio Physics and Space Sciences. We welcome you and we're very pleased that you would take the time out of your schedule to come to a place like Washington where everything seems to be living in today and not in tomorrow to share with us your particular view of how our past and our present uh, may well affect our future. Carl Sagan had become convinced that rising CO2 levels threatened the Earth. Because the effects occupy more than a human generation, there is a uh, tendency to uh, say that they uh, are not our problem. Uh, of course, then they are nobody's problem. Uh, not on my tour of duty, not on my term of office. It's something for the next century. Let the next century worry about it. But the problem is that uh, there are effects, and the greenhouse effect is one of them, which have long time constants. If you don't worry about it now, it's too late later on. And much as Sagan predicted, politicians and the American public didn't prioritize this so-called greenhouse effect, which initially did not surprise Charles Keeling all that much, according to his son, Ralph. I do know, I remember one of the first talks I heard him give, this is back in the 70s, I was an undergraduate at the time, uh, and he talked about how 
uh, as temperatures warmed up, there would be periods of denial because the, the temperature rise wouldn't be uniform. There would be hiatuses. <laughs> um, but that uh, at some point you would move beyond one of these uh, fluctuations that was offsetting the increase and see a, what would appear to be a spike increase. And uh, he expected that once temperatures really moved outside of the natural range, that there would be political will to do something about it. Um, and so I think, I think he was a little surprised at the stagnation. Charles Keeling died in 2005, and his son says his dad's work tracking carbon dioxide has been an inspiration in his own life. I mean, inspiring in the sense that you look at this and say, wow, that's got to be important. And uh, like many others, I ended up uh, making career choices based on an an awareness of the the potential and the the obvious importance of that record. So it really defined a whole broad agenda for the community to start dealing with climate change, realizing that it was an incontrovertible fact that CO2 was building up and would, would, would be affecting climate at some point. As Ralph Keeling has watched the political debate about climate change continue, his feelings have been mixed. Well, certainly as a citizen, it's disheartening that more hasn't been done to try to curtail the use of fossil fuels, which is the the main cause of the rise and therefore of the climate change. I would say as a as a scientist, it's, it's exciting times. And so uh, when you discover something new about the planet, even if it's bad news, it's still exciting. So my career choice was guided by the excitement of discovery, and that excitement hasn't gone away as we continue to burn fossil fuels. So in a kind of a perverse way, I benefit from the problem. The good news, he says, is that levels of CO2 will fall. Eventually, we're going to run through the fossil fuels on the planet. Things will stabilize. The only question is whether humans will be around to see that happen. And between now and then, he says, there could be some serious upheaval. I think the potential impact on the less well-to-do on the planet, particularly in other countries, is the most concerning element of this. And when you think about the impact, what, what kind of impact are you thinking about? I'm thinking about climate refugees. I'm thinking about the displacement of hundreds of millions of people. That scares me. Ralph Keeling is program director of the Scripps CO2 program at the University of California, San Diego. The program was begun 60 years ago by his father, Charles Keeling, to measure the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. We will have pictures of Charles Keeling and the station on Mauna Loa, which is still conducting measurements. And we will link to a recent NOVA program called Decoding the Weather Machine, where you can see more about the work of Charles Keeling. That's all at innovationhub.org. This is a story about empowering the little guy and how sometimes that empowerment backfires. In this case, the little guy was named Lynn Jordan. Jordan needed to buy prescription medication. And back in the 1970s, the state of Virginia had a law that barred pharmacies and pharmacists from advertising how much prescription drugs cost. For consumers like Jordan, that was an expensive problem. 
Pharmacies priced drugs wildly differently, but there was no way of checking on those prices. There was no internet, of course, no advertising, and many pharmacists would refuse to tell you the prices over the phone because of the law. But help was on the way. In the form of a young lawyer who had risen to fame arguing that American corporations often didn't think nearly enough about the health and well-being of consumers. The lawyer's name was Ralph Nader, and he had initially been a critic of car companies, who in his view were not doing what they needed to do to keep passengers safe. Nader founded a group called Public Citizen, which advocated for the little guy, and he brought in a team of brilliant lawyers. Well, the story of Ralph Nader is really one uh, about some of the dangers of innovation, that sometimes innovation designed to help you ends up helping your direct competitors even more so. That's Adam Winkler, a law professor at UCLA and author of the new book, We the Corporations, How American Businesses Won Their Civil Rights. The case around whether individual consumers were entitled to know the drug prices at pharmacies went all the way to the Supreme Court. Now, uh, of course, Nader was trying to help the consumers of the drug price information, not the pharmacists. And he went to the Supreme Court saying that even though uh, I'm not representing pharmacists, my the consumers have a right to hear the, the messages that the pharmacists will say. Uh, and the Supreme Court agreed and established what's known as the listener's rights theory of the First Amendment. And the idea is that speech is protected regardless of the identity of the speaker, so long as it's valuable to the listeners. It was a huge victory for Nader and his hotshot legal team. They not only won, they won big. In fact, only one justice dissented, a conservative justice, William Rehnquist. Rehnquist worried that this might seem like a victory for the little guy, but that's not really what it was. What it was was free speech for corporations at a time when the government frequently banned or severely curtailed advertisements for things like liquor. And this case established a new standard. It would lead, Rehnquist wrote, to, quote, active promotion of prescription drugs, liquor, cigarettes, and other products. He warned that before we knew it, pharma companies would be selling us sleep aids. It would be a disaster. We know a place where tossing and turning have given way to sleeping, where sleepless nights yield to restful sleep, and Lunesta can help you get there. Amazingly... Rehnquist had seen the future, and it was filled with sleep aids. Probably not what Ralph Nader was hoping for. And in fact, um, the head of Ralph Nader's organization, Public Citizen, uh, recently wrote an article calling for the entire line of First Amendment cases extending rights to corporations to be overturned. Like, so what he's really saying is the victory I won, I wish it had never happened. It's a very uh, poignant version of constitutional buyer's remorse. That remorse, no doubt, is compounded because the Virginia pharmacy case turned out to pave the way for another case, a 2010 case called Citizens United, which allowed corporations to contribute to political campaigns during elections. Adam Winkler, the UCLA law professor, says that Citizens United was a case that extended the civil rights of corporations, even if ordinary Americans were not huge fans of the notion that corporations needed civil rights. Corporations are people, my friend. We can raise taxes on, of course they are. Everything corporations earn ultimately goes to people. So that was presidential candidate Mitt Romney at the 2011 Iowa State Fair. And his assertion was ridiculed. The clip was played over and over, probably to the chagrin of his campaign staff. 
But in some sense, Romney was not too far off the mark. Corporations have all sorts of rights you may not know about. Well, it turns out that like women and minorities who were left out of the original promise of we the people, corporations, too, have been fighting for equal rights for over 200 years. And, Mm. of course, corporations don't risk their lives the way civil rights marchers did. And there's no moral equivalency between those uh, various movements. But corporations have been fighting for 200 years to win the fundamental rights in the Constitution and today have nearly all the rights that a corporation could be uh, imagined to want, uh, freedom of speech freedom of religion, freedom against unreasonable searches and seizures. So um, most of our most fundamental rights do apply to corporations thanks to a 200-year effort by corporations to win those rights through landmark Supreme Court rulings. You talked about various movements for equality, and that's what people think about when they think about movements for equality in this country, women's rights, gay rights, um, minority rights. And we can all think of people, individual people, who were very sort of creative in how they spearheaded those movements and they thought of new ideas and in how to sort of promote their agenda. Can you talk about a person or two who in the uh, lesser known struggle for corporate rights was also creative in how they pushed that agenda? Well, that's a great question. And one of the most surprising things I found in my book was how innovative corporations have been in the field of constitutional law, Mm -hmm. that uh, the same pursuit of profit and uh, flexibility with resources that leads corporations to be at the vanguard of the economy have also led corporations to be first movers in constitutional law and in civil rights. And so, for instance, I uh, have a chapter where I look at how the Southern Pacific Railroad Company in the early 1880s spearheaded new and innovative ways of fighting um, for civil rights. So uh, long before the NAACP did this, uh, the Southern Pacific Railroad Company uh, launched a series of test cases, more than 60 in all, uh, headed by the best lawyers that money could find uh, to seek bold and expansive new rights for corporations under the 14th Amendment. And talk about the 14th. Do you want to talk about what the 14th Amendment was designed to do? The 14th Amendment was adopted after the Civil War to protect the rights of the newly freed slaves. But um, about 15 years later, um, the Southern Pacific Railroad Company launched this remarkable series of test cases saying that corporations should be protected by the 14th Amendment, too. And uh, the story is one of the most disturbing in American constitutional history. Um, The Southern Pacific Railroad hired a lawyer who was a former drafter. Uh, one-time drafter of the 14th Amendment. And he told the justices that the framers had intended to protect corporations, not just the newly freed slaves Mm. in the 14th Amendment. Turns out that historians now know that that lawyer lied to the Supreme Court. Um, But nonetheless, uh, the court ultimately agreed and did extend those rights to corporations. Mm. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Adam Winkler. He's a law professor at UCLA. He's author of the new book, We the Corporations, How American Businesses Won Their Civil Rights. Um, I said at the beginning that uh, the little guy has sometimes gotten hurt by uh, cases that have ultimately piled up more and more civil rights on the corporate side. Um, But that is not always true in the stories that you tell. And and you talk about this um, man in the early 1900s who owned an amusement park, and he actually used the power that corporations had gained uh, to protect his own civil rights. Uh, So the man who owned the amusement 
Amusement Park, uh, was African-American. And he was sued by folks in Virginia who were saying, listen, we don't want all these African-Americans coming into our neighborhood to go to this amusement park. Um, And the owner was actually able to defend himself because corporations had such extensive rights. Uh, Do you want to talk about that case? Sure. It was a case involving, like you say, an amusement park for uh, African-Americans in Virginia back at around the turn of the century. And the local neighbors sued uh, trying to put the amusement park out of business because they said uh, that African-Americans were not allowed to buy the land that the amusement park was located on. Okay, Was that in the law that African-Americans were not allowed to buy that land? Wasn't that the law said that African-Americans couldn't buy the land? It was there were restrictions in the deed of the land that said it could not be sold to African-Americans. Okay, okay. Um, This was a racially restrictive covenant, a commonplace way in which racial segregation was enforced in America in the Jim Crow era. And uh, the court nonetheless ruled in favor of the amusement park, saying that uh, the amusement park was not owned by African-Americans. It was owned by a corporation. And mm. the corporation may have been run by African-Americans, but the corporation had no race itself, the court said. Mm. Um, uh, and uh, really highlights an interesting and unexpected phenomenon I found in looking at the history of corporate rights is that in many ways it, the rights of corporations became tied up with questions of race, slavery, and civil rights, just like almost anything else in American history. To go back to Mitt Romney, that that famous quote, you know, corporations are people, couldn't you argue, and I, I, I guess corporations probably have, that, you know, look, corporations are a collection of people and um, their interest, you know, when they fight for their interest, whether it's talking about tariffs or whatever it is, they are fighting to keep their workforce, to not have to lay people off, to be profitable, to share those profits. Um Isn't that in some, you know, I think, you know, people derided Mitt Romney, but isn't that a reasonable way to look at things that corporations are a collection of people and they're trying to act in their best interest? That is exactly the way the Supreme Court has tended to view corporations over the course of American history. Indeed, for all the controversy over corporate personhood, Citizens United never relies on that idea at all. And in fact, what I find in my book is that if you look at the history of Supreme Court cases extending rights to corporations, we find that most of those cases, the Supreme Court rejects the idea of corporate personhood and says instead that corporations are associations of people Mm -hmm. and that people come together in the corporate form, and they shouldn't lose their rights when they do so. Mm -hmm. But there are some interesting questions about who really belongs to the corporation. When Hobby Lobby refuses to provide birth control as required under federal law in health care plans for employees, um, that's, you know, 10,000 female employees who are adversely affected by Mm -hmm. that decision uh, that is made by, uh, to pursue the interests of the four or five owners of the Hobby Lobby company, um, whose interests really should be uh, recognized, the the people who contribute the money or the people who contribute the labor and everything else. Can you imagine a whole bunch more cases coming down the pike, like as more CEOs get active and get involved? Um, I think of Bank of America that just a few months ago said they don't want to finance companies that that make uh, weapons like the AR-15. We've seen Patagonia sue the Trump administration over uh, national monuments and protection of national monuments. I just wonder if there's going to be a whole new crop of these cases that, like, test the power of corporations. 
we're really seeing a flourishing of corporate rights cases. And uh, indeed, there's a major case before the Supreme Court this term, the Masterpiece Cake Shop case that yeah. deals with whether a yes. Colorado baker can refuse to sell a wedding cake to a same-sex couple. And if the Supreme Court rules in favor of that baker and the bakery, Masterpiece Cake Shop, it will give corporations and businesses more leeway to discriminate mm. in the field of same-sex marriage. Mm. Um, and it's not just there. We're seeing lawsuits brought against graphics, cigarette warnings. We're seeing lawsuits brought against conflict mineral disclosures uh, under the securities laws. And indeed, by one study, a full 50 percent of all First Amendment cases brought today are brought by corporations and trade associations that represent them. Adam Winkler is a law professor at UCLA. He's the author of the new book, We the Corporations, How American Businesses Won Their Civil Rights. Adam, thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me. We talked earlier about a lawyer who lied to the Supreme Court, saying that the drafters of the 14th Amendment, which gave rights to former slaves, meant to give rights to companies, too. Well, that man, former Senator Roscoe Conkling, also turned down a nomination to be on the Supreme Court twice. He's actually the last person in American history to decline an appointment to the Supreme Court. We're going to have more on him and his strange and extraordinary life at our website, innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Songer and Mark Filipino, and engineer Doug Sugertz. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI, Public Radio International.